0: It's so good to be able to be together this evening, isn't it? It is, in fact, a grand blessing. It was mentioned a moment ago, in fact, in the course of our prayer of of another opportunity and that you and and I each have accepted this afternoon, the opportunity to gather and to worship. As we meet to worship, our goal, of course, is to do that which God would find pleasing, and that governs really the fullness of what you and I do in worship, doesn't it? As you may have already noticed in the bulletin as well as on the wall to my left, we'll be looking at least for a few moments this evening at one of the conversion accounts as it's found in the book of Acts in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, you'll go ahead and be turning to Acts chapters 10 and 11. It is in that pair of chapters that we'll be focusing our attention this evening for the next few moments. As we do those things, let me go ahead and say that these introductory remarks certainly, I would think, would be reasonable in light of the lesson that you and I are about to study. When you and I look at the book of Acts, certainly the three things that seemingly stand out most notably about that book are the fact that it records for us the establishment of the church, the greatest of all organizations. But in addition to that, also in that same book, we find the record of conversion accounts. One by one, throughout that book, we find cases of individuals who became Christians Our slogan and motto today surely is, If we do today what they did then, then we will be today what they were then. Simple New Testament Christians. Finally, that book of Acts sets before us a marvelous consideration of history to many of the later New Testament books that follow it. Among those three things, though, it's the second one that captures our attention, at least for the moment, the conversion accounts. You may notice immediately the following. We learn, among other things, that those individuals that obeyed the gospel, some of them were men, like the Ethiopian eunuch. Some of them were women, like Lydia in Acts 16. But it was the same steps of conversion for each one of them. Some of them were rather notable individuals, again, like that eunuch he worked for the treasurer, Candace However, you also remember that some were much more lowly in their style of life. But the point is, the same steps of conversion are needful for everybody. Aside from that fact, notice even position and placement offered no distinction either. Maybe as we build that particular point, the latter part of it now focuses the spotlight. Of all those conversion accounts, it's Cornelius this evening that shall come before us That's revealed for us in the 10th chapter, so might I invite you to look again with some care at that lengthy chapter, chapter 10. We'll not read all of it from start to finish, but we will in fact look with interesting care in a story-like fashion at some of the things that we see in it. Maybe with all those things in mind. Let's begin our journey then as follows, and I've tried to divide the lesson in several particular applications, and the first one is this one. What can you and I conclude about the person, the character, if you please, of this gentleman named Cornelius? As the chapter begins, verse number 1 directly informs us of several very vital matters. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. And immediately we make note of the fact that this gentleman, Cornelius, is called a centurion. Probably you even recognize a section or part of that name. It reminds us of the word century, doesn't it? Century is a hundred years. A centipede is a bug with a hundred legs. This centurion, you notice, was a gentleman who had command over one hundred Roman soldiers. You notice immediately with me, this gentleman Cornelius was a person of rather noteworthy stature in that ancient empire. A commander, if you please. Not only that you notice something else about him. That verse number 1 told us he is of the Italian band. History informs us that the Roman government stationed troops in various places throughout the empire, the purpose of which was to maintain law and order everywhere. Caesarea was a long, long way from Rome, and yet they had stationed troops in that seaport town of Caesarea, and there Cornelius had charge of these 100 Roman soldiers you notice immediately that that makes him a Gentile. Look over to chapter 11, verse number 18, and note again that reading that John read for us just a moment ago. Acts eleven eighteen informs us of a remarkable feature and character of this man. It says, "...when they heard these things, they held their peace, and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life." As Peter made that comment... And that rehearsal of chapter 11, he was referring back to the scenes of chapter 10. There we find that this man Cornelius was a Gentile. And immediately something new has come before us. One by one as we look at the conversion accounts in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, those on Pentecost were Jews. In Acts chapter 3, those again assembled on Solomon's ports were Jews. When we arrive at chapters 7 and 8... We remember there Stephen was preaching again to a group that were of Jewish extraction. In chapter number 8, when Philip went down to Samaria, they again were noteworthily considered in light of their observation of Jewish character. Maybe in light of all those things, we notice one by one, there had been no Gentiles addressed at all until now. Cornelius was a Gentile. The events unfolded then before us in this chapter were very significant. The very first Gentiles, could they be admitted to the church? Could they be saved? If so, how? You'll notice beyond that, you appreciate with me this coastal town of Caesarea that we had mentioned just a moment ago. In just a minute, as we look at one of the features We'll talk a little bit more about that town on that occasion. When we do, I'll try to ask us to refer back to some of the features that we've highlighted even here. But keep in mind, it was a coastal city. One final thing about this character, this person of Cornelius. Isn't it impressive to give thought to the way that this chapter describes him? I would invite you to notice carefully with me some of the following features. I've tried to list them one by one first of all, the word devout. You'll notice in verse number two, it says, Cornelius was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Four things are immediately identified for you and me as it relates to this man. First of all, He was a devout man. That word means godly. It means pious. It carries with it the appreciation. He was respectful of divine things. Not only that, he was very generous. He gave much alms to the people. This man, Cornelius, of which you and I are now reading, he would have been a fantastic neighbor. He would never have bothered you. He would always have been as helpful as he possibly could. But not only that, you'll notice, he was a prayerful man. Here was a Gentile. Notice, he was aloof from that law of Moses, but he was prayerful nonetheless. Might I ask you to notice, particularly verse number 4 is the way it concludes. Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. This man's prayers reached the very halls of heaven. It's not that he prayed and his prayers never did any good. Later in verse number 31, another statement of his prayer life is given. Thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. As we continue onward, you'll notice that even those that worked with him, in verse number 22, described him as a just man. He sought justice and equity for all of whom he had significance and importance In addition, it is said that he was a God fearing man. It would seem to me fairer then to conclude that he was highly respected by those that worked beneath him. He was highly respected by those who knew of him. Cornelius was an impressive man. The last comment then is an order. You and I live in a world in which there are many who would be happy to say, I'm fine the way I am, when you and I invite them to attend church services. I don't think I'm interested. I live a good clean moral life. I don't need anything else. Really? There was never a man I suppose much better than Cornelius. And yet as we're about to find there were still some matters of which he was greatly needful and things that were vital in significance in relation to all Gentiles and others in their association to God. Thus, we can immediately notice good moral living by itself is not enough to save you. In Galatians 2.21, we find a passage that seems to remind us about that very thought. Paul so quickly affirmed on that occasion, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If somebody could just live a clean life, then they would never have needed Jesus to come. He would never have needed to die on the cross if good living alone is enough to save. But the fact is, Jesus did come, and He needed to come for the salvation of all of us. The second point, then, is going to be this one. As this chapter has unfolded so far, Cornelius has taken center stage. At this point, notice verse number 3. 3. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him, saying unto him, Cornelius, as you and I quickly observe, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. At this particular time, we notice that Cornelius had a vision. That particular verse describes it as follows. An angel of God gave him some instructions. An angel of God gave him some things of which he needed to be greatly aware. And so it is at the top of this slide, the instructions were very specific. Verse number 4. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter this angel informed Cornelius, you send men to Joppa, and you there seek for the man known as Peter. And furthermore it says, verse number 6, the angel even told him where this Peter is to be found. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Cornelius, as impressive a person as you are, as... Interesting a person as you are, as good a man as you in fact are, you need to send men to Joppa, and there you'll find, living in the house of Simon the Tanner, a man named Peter, he'll tell you what you need to know. At this point, perhaps, we can consider the following. Here's another map that you and I often use in our appreciations of the things unfolded before us. Let me try to highlight, if I can... Again, the lettering may be a little bit small, but I'll try to circle and point out the things to us. Here's the city of Joppa. Notice it's a seaport town. Here is Caesarea, the place where Cornelius was. Here's where the Roman soldiers were stationed, over which Cornelius, of course, had authority. He was told by the angel to send men to Joppa, about 25 miles, almost due south. And there, Peter happened to be residing, at the house of a gentleman named Simon, a tanner. As you and I noticed. furthermore back on that previous slide, having identified a little bit about the map, Cornelius seemingly wasted no time. The text says in verse number 7, "...when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually... And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. It would appear that no sooner did the angel leave than Cornelius called two of his servants and a soldier and gave them orders to go to Joppa. Notice again what kind of a person Cornelius seems to have been. Spiritual things were important to him. He wanted to be right with God and at this point in time, all the angel had told him, Peter's got some information for you. You need to send men find out what it is. As you can see, that brings us to the impressiveness of the mission. Point number three is now the following. As you and I think about Peter residing in this city of Joppa, isn't it fascinating to think about the interplay of biblical matters both in the Old and New Testament? In this place, we find Peter dwelling in Joppa. A Gentile named Cornelius was sending men whereby he was actually going to have instructions for the incorporation of the Gentiles into the church. Isn't it ironic in the Old Testament, Joppa is the very same city that Jonah went to and there he boarded a ship fleeing from the Gentiles. Isn't that odd? Jonah fled from them disobeying what God said whereas Peter was going to be called to them from the very place known as Joppa. In addition to those things, notice how God prepared Peter for the coming of these messengers from Cornelius. Beginning in verse number 9. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, and he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And saw heaven opened, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, and let down to the earth. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat!' But Peter said, "'Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean.' And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. As you and I imagine the scene we've just read, you notice again those messengers from Cornelius had now arrived at the very outskirts of Joppa. They were virtually at the city. And while they were there, you notice that Peter, about the middle of the day, the noonday hour... It was getting close to lunchtime and he had gone up to the housetop. And you'll notice the text says he became very hungry in verse number 10 and would have eaten, but then quickly we are informed that while they made ready, while they were making preparation of the lunch, he fell into a trance. Peter fell into a trance. Now, you and I so often remember that in that day and time, visions and trances were given by God for the purpose of instruction, and they carried messages and meanings. On this occasion, verse number 11, Peter saw heaven opened, and he saw a vessel descending out of heaven in the shape of like as it were a sheet held up and drawn together at the four corners. As you quickly notice, this sheet wasn't empty, though, or this vessel, I should say. This vessel had in it, verse number 12, all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And immediately some of our thoughts come as follows. The command in light of that was given to Peter, Rise, kill and eat. Peter quickly recoiled with disagreement. For he quickly made note of, Not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Immediately to our mind comes the restrictions that the Jews obeyed in terms of the food laws. In the Old Testament, the Jews in Leviticus chapters 11 and 12 were specifically forbidden from eating a number of kinds of foods. In fact, there's a pretty short list of what they were allowed to eat. In light of all that, Peter quickly reminded, this is not appropriate for me to eat these kinds of animals. Now, there were clean ones there and unclean ones there, and Peter quickly affirmed that I'm not permitted to eat the unclean ones. However, you'll notice that this vision, this trance into which Peter had fallen, brought a message and a powerful one from God. Let's again notice one of the verses. Verse number 15 says, The voice came the second time. Peter didn't immediately learn the lesson, but the second time, what God hath cleansed, call not thou common. One more time, you and I might notice verse 16. This was done three times. The vessel ascending and descending, identifying the power of what God hath cleansed, call not thou common. Finally, in light of all that, verse number 17 makes one final observation for this moment. While Peter doubted, the word doubted means to be confused. It means to be perplexed. At this point, despite the fact what had taken place three times, Peter still didn't fully understand it. He still didn't completely appreciate the message that was to be had in store. Let's finish reading that same verse, verse 17. Now, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, Behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Isn't this a marvelous lesson to the providence of God? While Peter had just seen this vessel in this marvelous trance, the men from Cornelius were waiting outside the door. They were waiting, inquiring as to where this Peter was, whom Cornelius had sent them to find. No wonder then, beginning in verse number 18 and 19, You and I come to the close of that as we bypass that same map we had seen previously. It brings us now to notice with care, verse number 19. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said to him, while Peter was pondering and thinking about that vision, that trance he had just seen, the Holy Spirit directly now intercedes and gives Peter the final message which he had yet failed to appreciate. It says, Behold, three men seek thee. Verse 20, Arise therefore and get thee down, and go with them doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Peter, that trance you've just seen. Three men are looking for you. I've sent them. You go with them. The next verse goes on to say Then Peter went down to the men, verse 21, which were sent unto him from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause wherefore you're come? As Peter then descended from the housetop and informed the three men, he now knew exactly that the Holy Spirit had sent them. God's providence worked by way of preparing Peter in terms of both the mission and in terms of what he was to say to them. As you and I come to that, might we appreciate. Verse number 23 says, Peter called the men and lodged them that night, and on the morrow Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. They stayed overnight there in Joppa, and then proceeded on the next day on that journey back to Caesarea. That brings us to our fourth point. By this point, aren't you just anxious to appreciate? Here was Cornelius. Four days earlier, he had sent Peter or sent for Peter. What was Peter going to tell him? All that that angel of God had informed Cornelius is, you send for Peter who will tell you what you need to do. How would you and I have reacted to be waiting over these day after day? What's he going to tell me? What's going to be required of me? As you and I come to point number four, when Peter came, What information was shared? I would ask you to notice verse number 24. And on the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. One more time it seems to me we must be impressed with Cornelius. Here was some information and he was greatly anxious to hear it, but not only was he excited, he couldn't wait to share it. He called together his family, his kinsmen. He wanted them also to be apprised of that beautiful message that Peter was going to share. Verse number 25 says, And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. At this point, you and I might quickly appreciate that Cornelius was a very respectful man despite the fact he was again a Roman centurion, he fell before Peter with the attitude of being greatly worshipful and respecting of him. Maybe that leads us to make a brief comment. Did you ever notice how Peter responded to him? Please notice with care verse number 26 with me. But Peter took him up saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. Can you imagine in your mind here Cornelius had fallen on the ground before Peter and Peter with his hand, Get up! I'm a man like you are. I am not to be worshipped. If only men throughout the ages would have appreciated that. There are those in our world today who seemingly take great pride in being the object of worship. Peter did not feel that way. He knew well that worship belonged only to God. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve, borrowing the words of Jesus in Matthew 4 verse 10. Maybe in light of that, you and I notice Peter had understood something vital. That vessel he had seen descending and ascending from heaven, and that message from the Spirit that leads me to ask you to notice verse 28. By now, Peter knew very well the purpose of this mission. Verse 28 says, And he said unto them, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that's a Jew to keep company or come into one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Peter was now in the midst of these Gentiles. And Peter said, We all know well that in times past it was understood a Jew is not to have communion with those that are of Gentile extraction but I've learned from God that I'm not to call any man common or unclean. No wonder in the verses that follow, you and I notice well that a conversation develops between Cornelius and Peter. And As a part of that conversation, notice verse number 30 in what Cornelius affirmed. Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who when he comes shall speak unto thee immediately. Verse number 33, therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore are we all here present before God, to hear the things that are commanded thee of God. Cornelius basically said, Peter, we have been excitedly waiting for you to come and share with us the message from God. One more time, I would invite all of us to think with care. This was said by a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He did not know the law of Moses. He had no access to that law. He was a Gentile. And yet he spoke about God. He spoke about learning from God. Maybe that very idea is going to bring us to the fifth point. A rather vital matter, really, in this conversion of Cornelius. When we come to point number five, might we at least pause to ask this question. Beneath what law was this man Cornelius worshiping? When he was offering prayer to God, And when he was so highly respected by matters related to religion, under what law was he serving? Well, let's see if we can piece that together as follows. There have only been three dispensations of time, three eras if you please, where the creation came into being the patriarchal dispensation. And we remember individuals like Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and a whole host of others. Maybe some of that could be summarized in a way like this. Three dispensation. As on the left, we find the patriarchal dispensation. It began again with the moment of creation, and it is the law to which individuals in that earliest epoch of time, it's the law by which they served God. You'll notice some of the features of it. It lasted for, for the Jews at least around 2,500 years, but you'll notice something. All humanity served beneath that law at that time. God spoke to people by the way of the patriarchs. God gave His law to the human family as He spoke to the fathers. God spoke to Abraham. In Genesis eighteen nineteen, tells us, Abraham then shared that message with the other members of his family. God spoke to Adam, and Adam shared that message with the other members of his family but something of course changed when you and I come to Mount Sinai. A law, known as the Mosaic law came into being. God gave the law of Moses on that moment, and he gave it, but he didn't give that to everybody. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 tells us that this law of Moses was given only only to those that were Hebrews. In other words, those that were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, only they were given this law. That means that all those that were not the children of Abraham through Jacob, they continued to serve beneath the patriarchal law. That law was never done away with at that moment for them. Isn't it true then at that point we seemingly appreciate that there were two laws running side by side? The Jews served beneath the law of Moses, but the non-Jews served beneath the law of the patriarchal law. And both of those continued until the Christian era. The death of our Savior. The events on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Notice at this point, then what you and I would quickly affirm. The Gentiles had never been given access to this law up until this point. Here's the first convert of a Gentile. He was still serving beneath the patriarchal law. That's the only law God had ever given to him and the only law to which he ever had had access to God. As such, you'll notice he was offering prayer to God beneath that law and the text says God heard it and the text says that God responded to it. Maybe in light of those things, as we revisit that previous slide, You notice again that this man Cornelius, a Gentile, serving beneath that patriarchal law. Now something interesting comes before us. As this conversation develops, we find that Cornelius more than once in the chapter was described as a man pleasing to God beneath the law that he was then serving under. We should take great comfort and great learning as we think about what that's teaching us and what that's setting before us. This man Cornelius, although he was at this point in his life a saved man beneath the patriarchal law, the Christian era was now underway. And the Gentiles needed access to that marvelous attribute of being right with God as well. And a new law was going to supersede that old one in fact. This new law, the Christian law, the law of Christ, is now one that Cornelius needed to hear about. As we develop all of that, let's come and look at point six. For after all, when Peter came, what was the first words out of his mouth in verses 34 and 35? Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. God is no respecter of persons. The Jew, the Gentile alike now both have equal access to God. And Cornelius, you need to be apprised of this beautiful plan of salvation. No wonder as you come to that particular slide, Peter launched into it a powerful sermon at this point. He preached about Jesus. He preached about the life of Christ. He preached about the death of Christ. He preached about the burial and the resurrection of Christ. He preached about the ascension of Jesus. Peter's sermon centered wholly on the greatness and the benefits and blessings of Jesus the Christ. At this point, you and I notice many Old Testament prophets had things to say about this very idea. They had foretold that the Gentiles would be included. One might quickly mention Hosea chapters 1 and 2, Isaiah chapters 60 and 61, all highlight the very fact that one day from that point, the Gentiles were going to be added in. They were going to be included into the marvelous fold of God. Surely in light of that, you and I find it amazing when we reach verse number 44. While Peter yet spake these words in the midst of the lesson, if you please, it says the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. We don't know how many people Cornelius had invited. But as you can imagine, Peter preaching to them and here the Holy Spirit falls on them. You and I would call that another episode of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I say it that way with care because that's what I've included by virtue of what it parallels. Only two times in all of history has there been a baptism of the Holy Spirit. One of them occurred in Acts chapter 2, on that day when the apostles were baptized in that way and began to speak with tongues. Notice what happened here. Verse number 45 says, And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, "...as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God." Here, these Gentiles began to speak in languages they had never learned. They began to speak in tongues just like the apostles had done on the day of Pentecost, some several years earlier. This baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit then leads us to notice... These tongues were an affirmation that God was behind this. It was one of those amazing spiritual activities pointing out the fact that the God of heaven was orchestrating these events. Maybe it's in light of that. We notice Peter makes a final comment. Verse number 47, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? You might notice that the baptism in the Holy Spirit did not work one-on-one with salvation. They still needed to be baptized in water. And thus Peter said, in light of the fact they've received the Holy Spirit by way of that baptism, can any man forbid water? They are acceptable candidates for that baptism as well. At that point, verse number 48 says, He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. We find the conversion of Cornelius. You'll notice that final thought. When Cornelius heard the gospel, he was then subject to it, and had he, of course, rejected it, he would have been a lost man. He now was being brought beneath the umbrella of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, he and they not only heard it, they obeyed it, and they became Christians. Simple New Testament Christians. In light of those things, the conversion of Cornelius has taught us a lot of things about the various laws and dispensations. We've learned so much of impressiveness about the man, but we've also learned how beautifully he obeyed. Maybe in light of those things, we can draw to a point of conclusion our lesson for the evening, the conversion of Cornelius. You'll notice on that slide, the very first Gentile convert What an overwhelming moment it was. Did you notice? Even the Jews who were there witnessing these events, they were impressed. And even they had to concur that this was a matter of God's working. Surely then we've seen some of these things. This was a work of God. That patriarchal dispensation, just like the mosaic, was being done away with, and everybody was now going to serve God beneath the same law, the law of Jesus Christ. Paul referred to that later in Galatians 6, verse 2. Also in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 21 and 22. In every one of those instances, aren't you and I thankful? The same law is here for all of us. Be we old or young, be we man or woman, all of us have exactly the same opportunity under the same law to serve the same God of heaven. At this point, One time later, as Peter referred back to these events, he made the comment that God had put no difference between them and us, Acts 15.9. The same plan of salvation for the Jew was what was demanded of the Gentile. You and I, 20 centuries later, are in that same circumstance. Tonight, there might be someone in the audience who finds yourself apart from God. Maybe, though, that gospel ministration has been submitted and you've heard many lessons, you've never yet obeyed them. Why do you remain in that condition? If you have reached an age of knowing wrong from right and you know Jesus died for you and you know the character of belief and of repentance and of confession, you need to be baptized tonight. If we could help you in doing that, we'd be delighted to assist you. If you, however, have become a member of the body of Christ and you have known the sweetness of and all the blessings that came with it. But you right now are not faithful. You've allowed influences from the world to cloud your judgment, and you've done things and said things and perhaps been places you should never have done, said, or been. You need to come back to your first love tonight. Why not invite us to pray to God on your behalf, and we'd be delighted to do it. A song of encouragement has been selected. This is a convenient time, and if there's someone in the audience that would need to come, why do you delay? Why not come even now and obey just as thoroughly as Cornelius did? And if we could help you, why don't you do that while together we stand and sing?